2: And you know better than to make the common mistake of thinking that the Civil War ended at Appomattox. We all know that there was still Joe Johnston's army in North Carolina, Kirby Smith out west, the cruising Confederate raider Shenandoah, all waiting to surrender before the war could truly end. But even those all represent military events and war is a political state. In After Appomattox, Military Occupation and the Ends of War Professor Gregory P. Downs argues that the war didn't end, either technically or in real terms, on the ground until 1871. We'll find out why tonight on Civil War Talk Radio.
1: Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, VoiceAmerica.com.
0: Powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market.
1: The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to Prokopovich G at ECU.edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu.edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich coming to
2: you from the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina, part of the University of North Carolina system, but not speaking for the University of North Carolina system, or ECU, or the Brewster Building, or the History Department, or anyone, just myself as always, and our guest will likewise do the same tonight. It is cold here in Greenville on the uh, 20th of January 2016, the second show of the new semester, the spring semester here uh, on campus. And uh, finally, for the first time this winter, I got to put on a sweater and even get out my winter coat, which I usually only wear a couple times here in North Carolina. Uh, it was good to be able to wear them all. It was good to be uh, up and walking around this past week. Last week I uh, shared in the the TMI department uh, too much information about uh, hurting my back and being unable to get around easily, but I'm over that and moving as blithely as ever and starting to think about the uh, over 55 team Uh, Greenville Stars has a tournament in February and I could call. I could play on the over 55 team and be one of the younger guys again. So I'm looking forward to that. But I'll fill you in on that as we get closer to it. Uh, in Civil War news, uh, Jack Dempsey, longtime friend of the show, shared an item with me this past week uh, regarding the home of Ulysses Grant, uh, U.S. Grant, and his wife Julia, uh, the first home that they uh, lived in after they got married. Uh, is, was in Detroit, Michigan, and it's still there. It's a Greek revival uh, house. It was originally on Fort Street near uh, Fort Wayne, the, uh, the, the military post, not the city in Indiana. And then spent uh, a long time on the Michigan State Fairgrounds back when that was open near uh, 8 Mile Road in Woodward in Detroit. Uh, The building itself is still there. It's the third oldest house in the city, and there is a move to restore it. So they are trying to locate, or have located a possible place to uh, uh, set it up and uh, have it resume its role as an interpretive center. If you're interested in contributing toward the restoration of the U.S. grant home, uh, contact the Michigan Civil War Association care of Dickinson Wright, PLLC. They are at 350 South Main Street, Suite 300, Ann Arbor, Michigan. It's 48104. Uh, if you uh, Google online, I'm sure for the Grant House, you may be able to find out that information again, But uh, or write to me if you want to know more, but that's a good thing in uh, Civil War restoration. We will have good things in Civil War conversation coming up on this show in the weeks ahead. Next week, we have uh, Bill Backus. He is the co-author, along with Robert Orison, of the book A Want of Vigilance, the Bristow Station Campaign, October 9 to 19, 1863. And then on February 3rd, the following Wednesday, Christopher Dickey will join us after uh, we had to reschedule uh, due to uh, a uh, a snafu last semester, but he'll be with us, his book, Our Man in Charleston, Britain's Secret Agent in the Civil War South, a delightfully readable book. Then on February 10th, our guest will be Mark McLaughlin, who is the designer of Rebel Raiders on the High Seas, a strategy game published by GMT Games. And we'll talk about uh, designing games based on the Civil War. Uh, uh, That is not his only game on the topic, but it's his most recent, and we'll talk about that, among other things. Then the following week, February 17th, David T. Dixon, author of The Lost Gettysburg Address. And to find out what The Lost Gettysburg Address is, you'll have to tune in. We'll talk about what that actually was. A couple other events uh, to mention, in May of this year, May 21 through 29, Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours will be offering their Civil War Sites Tour titled This Hallowed Ground. Uh, I will be joining them as the traveling historian, telling stories about my adventures on the soccer pitch. No, I will not do that for them. I will tell them just about the Civil War. Uh, and hope that some of you can join us. It's always a lot of fun. Uh, usually, there's a couple folks on the bus who are Civil War Talk Radio listeners, and by the time we're done, hopefully, they all are. But uh, check out Stephen Ambrose' historical tours. Go to their website and uh, sign up for this Hallowed Ground, May 21 through 29. Another event coming up uh, locally here on campus next Tuesday, the 26th of January at 730 here in the Hendricks Auditorium uh, is a program called What's in a Name uh, featuring uh, Derek Alderman, uh, the uh, chair of uh, geography at University of Tennessee, and uh, Al Brophy from the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill Law School, and they'll be talking uh, the full title, What's in a Name, Memorials, and uh, Historical Memory, talking about the issues that go on uh, with historical naming. And I'll share a little background on that as we wait for our guests to join us. Professor Downs is teaching a class even as we speak. At this point, he's halfway across campus, rushing back to his office. It's only 4 o'clock out there on the West Coast, so they've just finished the afternoon seminar, and as soon as he gets in and and calls us, we'll talk about his book. In the meantime, uh, I've shared with you the uh, adventures here at ECU with our own uh, dormitory named for Governor uh, Aycock, the the so-called education governor. That residence hall is recently renamed. The name was taken off the building. Uh, a number was put up in its place. It's now building 171 for the time being, uh, with the promise that Acock and his uh, contemporaries will be remembered in more detail in a uh, historical exhibit uh, tentatively called Heritage Hall. And happy to report that that project continues to go forward. It is... Part of a worldwide movement. Uh, That's what we'll be talking about on the 26th here on campus with uh, Professors Alderman and Brophy to rethink how we remember the past, uh, including the Civil War past. I'm sure all of you have heard about the city of New Orleans uh, discussing the removal of some major Civil War monuments from uh, parts of the city. This would have been unthinkable until a year ago. It was roughly uh, just, just. under a year ago, that the uh, the dreadful shooting took place in Charleston, South Carolina, and the shooter's self-identification with the Confederate battle flag caused a sea change of public opinion uh, to take place. Uh, people like the uh, governor of South Carolina, uh, conservative Republican Nikki Haley, uh, being among those who came out in favor of removing the uh, the The symbol of the Confederacy from state house grounds and putting it in a a historical site rather than a, a public site, a, a a political site like the the State house. And now people all around the uh, country are rethinking uh, the symbols, memorials, monuments to figures in the past, and asking what I think are really important and and worthwhile questions about them. Uh, who were these people? Who put up the monuments to them, and what did they intend by that? Uh, what do those monuments mean today, and uh, what should we what should we think about them? Uh, it's a subject that gets people hot. Uh, certainly has done so on this campus, and uh, is doing so other places. But it's worth It's worth thinking about. Uh, My initial reaction when I first heard, uh, and this was over a year ago, that uh, there was some movement to change the name of one of the dormitories uh, was that, uh, you know, well that's silly why do we need to do that? Uh, Who who was Governor Aycock anyway? I hardly know anything about him, even though I'm a historian. Uh, And that Since then, that that has caused a a rethinking of some of the the knee-jerk responses. One of them is, uh, well, we we shouldn't take these names down because they're educational. Uh, I drove by or walked by uh, ACOC Residence Hall many times without knowing much about him. Uh, I go by the Todd Dining Hall almost uh, every day, and I have no idea who Todd was, uh, uh, who it was named for. So the educational function that these names serve strikes me as pretty limited. Uh, we also hear the argument, well, if you take down one, you'll have to take down all of them. And that takes me back to law school arguments where it was pointed out when when people make the slippery slope argument, it means they're bankrupt of other ideas uh, because you can use that against anything. Uh, if we can't catch every murderer, then might as well not try to catch any of them. Uh, obviously, it's a, a not a good argument. That's not quite the slippery slope. That's the one that would say if we're going to. Uh, if we're going to change the name of ACOC, then well, who else are we going to change? We'll change every name pretty soon. Well, anyone who ever had a bad thought. Uh, but again, you can make an argument about anything. Well, this ties in uh, the idea of who put up monuments, particularly who put up ones in the South, uh, to our guest tonight who has written about the aftermath of the Civil War and, indeed, its continuation uh, Not, uh, his topic is not into the 20th century, but his topic is how it continued after the fighting in mathematics, and he joins us now. uh, Professor Downs, are you there? For having me. Ah, there. Welcome to the show. Glad you could make it. Uh, How was class today?
3: Uh, It was great. I was teaching the uh, Civil War, so we're on the coming of the Civil War. We're not yet to uh, the stuff you and I will focus on. So it still lies out there on the horizon, but it's getting closer and closer.
2: Well, very good. Well, you, your book, I have to say, was really an an eye opener for me. I, I really enjoyed reading it, uh, because there was so much to learn from it. Uh, let me start with a question about the uh, the subtitle, military occupation and the ends of war. Uh, the military occupation of the South. You you say in in uh, in the end matter of this book when you started writing this. Uh, your intention was to write about why there was no uh, uh, no meaningful occupation of the South after the Civil War. Uh, so That's what did right. you find?
3: So when I started, I think, you know, that like a lot of people, I was interested in what had been circulating through both policy and intellectual life about the limits of occupation, uh, obviously inspired by, you know, contemporary events and a really burgeoning um, set of literatures about how hard it is to run occupations, but that also suggested how hard it is for democracies to sustain occupations. And so I kind of started with the idea that this would be an interesting lens to look back at the problems of, uh, of reconstruction because it would help to orient us to the question of force, that if um, that I thought that we had explored as a field extremely well um, some of the limits of the ideological orientations of uh, Northern Republicans to Reconstruction, but in the process we had kind of, uh, of, of explained their defeat solely within their, largely um, within their actions, and that we needed to know more about some of the limits that were out there or why Reconstruction um, was defeated. And so I thought I would kind of quickly, um, uh, you know, that, that what I would write about is what blocked them from understanding the need to occupy the South and um, how we could explain that. And so then I thought, well, I'll just quickly look up where they were and where the Army was and what the Army was doing, and then it'll be relatively, that'll be fast, and then I'll jump into my ideological, you know, my my interest in their statements about why they didn't need military force.
2: And that seems like a very direct way to go about a historical question like this. We have to take a short break. I'm sorry it's so quick uh, since you joined us, uh, but we'll find out uh, how you just opened the page and found that answer so easily. Uh, When we come back, we're talking today with Gregory P. Downs, author of After Appomattox, Military Occupation and the Ends of War. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio.
4: The bottom line in business talk. Stimulating talk. Gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast.
1: All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to G at ecu dot That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. Our
2: guest tonight Gregory P. Downs, author of After Appomattox, Military Occupation and the Ends of War. We just started talking about uh, the genesis of this book, beginning with a simple question, uh, how big was the Union occupation of the South? So uh, you just looked that one up. That that took, what, uh, half an hour, I'm guessing. Uh,
3: if only. Uh, <laughs> but I think you're right that like a lot of, uh, you know, I think it can be easy um, now to feel like that many of the, the great historical questions have been answered, and and what we can do is sort of either fiddle around the edges or just take a reorientation of what's already known. But I think that when when you dive in, as you know, you can find out that there are actually a lot of basic things in a lot of fields that we still really don't know, and this turned out to be one of them, that... When I found references to where the army was um, in uh, the secondary literature, even great books had very sketchy based on um, numbers based on a handful of annual reports by the Secretary of War. Um, and that, in fact, it, with a few exceptions, it was very hard to figure out exactly how widespread the army was. So I thought, well then I'll just go look it up. So I went to D.C. into the National Archives. Um, and started messing around in the archives and uh, with the help of some, uh, some of the excellent archivists there. They said, well, to answer that, that's about 200 boxes worth. And I think they thought that <laughs> then I would go running and screaming, but I was perverse enough to say, well, let's get started. So I'd go in and I'd, you know, untie. They would bring out these boxes with, as as you know, these uh, reports, either monthly or weekly reports um, from different, some of which were organized by district and division, some of which were organized by Army unit. And most of them would be tied up in these decaying red um, threads. Um, that signaled that for many of them the quality of the fold and the tie meant they had been moved in the 1890s, and many of them seemed not to have been open since. So I'd untie them as carefully as I could and unfold the incredible trifold arrangements, um, and start just taking notes. And one day as, uh, as I was trying to process it back at home, my wife looked over and said, that's the single largest spreadsheet file I've ever seen. And it was at that point that it started to dawn on me that maybe my presumption that I was finding a very small occupation might turn out to not be true. And as I started to gather it together, I realized two things. First of all, that the places where the army was um, was much vaster than anyone knew. Um, I mean, they knew at the time than than that scholars knew. Um, and so that I estimate it's more than 750 sites in the in the Confederacy that the Army occupies for at least a month, often for many more. Um, and that the period of occupation, while not long, wasn't momentary. It wasn't just simply a passing through, but was certainly lengthy through the summer and fall in many of those places. And it extended in smaller numbers for, for years after. Um, so this then led me to ask, well, what were they doing? And that's what led me to make the turn I didn't expect to make into what the law of war meant to them um, and why it mattered so much to U.S. commanders and even to President Andrew Johnson to extend wartime. Um, because of the vital nature that this seemingly abstract question, when does a war end, that to many Americans that seemed a crucial question to ask, what could the United States do? And that if it meant to do much on the ground in the South, it would have to continue to suspend normal law and give exceptional power to these military units, often companies or even uh, smaller than uh, you know, smaller bands of soldiers that were scattered around the South in the period after Appomattox.
2: Well, obviously, if, if the war is over, then soldiers can't arrest people uh, and and hold them without trial. Uh, they can't take people's property for military purposes. A lot of things you do routinely in wartime: forage for food, or uh, even shoot people. You can do that in a war. You can't do that during peacetime. So. Um, it, it makes a huge difference if the war is still on or not. That's right. Uh, legally. Absolutely. And you're saying that, that, that it was important that they continue to exercise some of these powers.
3: That's right. That it was a. That you've, you've accurately identified the, the crux of the problem that many U.S. officials, and not just radicals, people, some of them would seem to us in the context as moderates or conservatives, had isolated as the crux of the problem, which is that. An American um, political order, uh, as you said, is based on the idea that the civilian officers are in control of government and that the Army answers to them. And, of course, the Army always answered to the president. Um, But during wartime, it doesn't have to defer to local officials, judges, sheriffs. And so not only can it make arrests, um, but in the Civil War, it could try people with this array of powers developed in the Civil War, some of which we still haven't been able to uh, shake ourselves loose of, of, military commissions, that it can hold people um, against judges' orders and you know, through a writ of habeas corpus, or that it could set aside local governments. And that even among a relatively moderate group of U.S. policymakers, they came to realize that the fundamental question of how life was going to be oriented on the ground depended upon... Um, the ability to circumvent normal legal processes long enough to put something else in place. And that meant that it mattered a lot, um, the seemingly narrow intellectual questions of what was an end of hostilities versus what was an end of wartime, um, because it would change what the army could do on the ground, and what the army could do on the ground in dialogue with what freed people were asking the army to do was what raised the possibility of holding off the survival of slavery, and then creating a different system to emerge, and including a set of basic rights after the end of slavery.
2: Well, l- let me ask about that. The, uh, As you point out in the opening, one image a lot of people hold in their heads is that at Appomattox, uh, Lee and Grant uh, reach a magnanimous uh, agreement at the McLean House, and then Union soldiers salute the uh, surrendering Confederate soldiers who return the salute. Everybody shakes hands, good game everyone, go back to their mm-hmm. respective locker rooms north and south. And uh, slavery is over because the Emancipation Proclamation and 13th Amendment says so, so now the slaves are free and you have a different labor system uh, overnight and everything's back to, nor- not back to normal, but up to the new normal. So why do you need the army there if uh, slaves are now free and going about their business and their former masters are now uh, doing whatever they do? Well, what do you need the army for?
3: It's a very good question, and certainly I think it, the power of that image of the family reunion um, at Appomattox courthouse obviously is—it's a, a powerful image in American cultural nationalism. It's a powerful image in the idea that the war solved the problems and that then allows us to construct a Reconstruction that creates problems, uh, new sets of problems that originate out of the war, but that contrast with the tidy solution of the problems in the war. But in the process, it obscures um, some of those divisions. It obscures some of the continuities between the war and what we call Reconstruction, one of which is um, you know, the, long, the widely held presumption um, that slavery had died. But by following these Army officers through the South, um, I'm able to show, as other people have shown uh, shown before me, that in fact slavery was not dead at Appomattox, that instead, as they move into the South, they find place after place um, where slavery survives, in Texas into, into December of 1865 or beyond, um, and where masters believe that if they can hold on to their slaves until peacetime is restored, they will then go to court and get the, uh, the Emancipation Proclamation invalidated and block the passage of the 13th Amendment. And if some slaves have been freed by the war, they will prevent the end of slavery from coming. And that this is a widely held belief, not because people are foolish or insane, but because if things had proceeded in the way that they imagined, it could well have been that some form of slavery, some slaves could have continued to be held. And U.S. officers say repeatedly Into the summer of 1865, they write back and say, it is not proclamations that will end slavery, it is bayonets. That if you mean to end slavery, it is only force that will do it. Meaning the situation they encounter when they march into an area, they've got their proclamations, they've got, certainly it's widely known what U.S. policy is, but freed people run to them and say, they're still being held as slaves over there, they're still being held as slaves over there. And what finally brings the end of slavery is this, Alliance between freed people and soldiers to pull soldiers onto plantations and to have them forcibly direct the end of slavery there. That slavery turned out to be in all kinds of ways much more resilient and powerful um, than the sort of fabled story of Appomattox would let us uh, would allow us to believe. The other myth that it catches um, is the other myth that gets uh, developed in the in the myth of Appomattox is the idea of an acquiescent Confederacy. And while I think that it's true that there's not an organized revolt against the United States after Appomattox, which certainly many U.S. officials were worried about, It's also true that for many Confederates, the extent of their obedience to the U.S. extends to the willingness of the U.S. not to interfere in their lives. And that immediately upon the intervention of the U.S. into that slave relationship, you see an immediate um, violent response of ex-Confederates to U.S. soldiers and, of course, to free people. So, in in, in short political
2: power grows from the barrel of a gun, uh, that that if you don't – where the army is, their federal policy is enforced. Uh, Their southern uh, desire to maintain the the social and uh, racial system that they've had for uh, centuries is temporarily suppressed. But as soon as the army leaves, what happens
3: then? That's exactly right. Or, even, uh, or another uh, corollary to that question is, what about the places where the army um, doesn't arrive or is mm-hmm. outside of the boundaries? And what I found is that both soldiers and ex-slaves had very particular sense of the geographic reach of federal power. They would talk about there being peripheries, there being ranges and radii where federal power was meaningful, and then areas beyond at which they might be able to come in and to reach a federal officer and try and draw them back out, and then of an area beyond where you still had a continuity of planter power almost uh, unregulated by the federal government except in moments of, of extremity. And so what I came to realize is that what they were talking about was a form of rights, um, a way of thinking about rights that associated it very carefully with power and proximity to power. And that rather than a sense of rights as being orchestrated through a set of legal proceedings, which would be a natural way for contemporary Americans to think about it, they thought of rights as being about power, which meant about proximity to people who could enforce them. And this... Changed the way that I thought in certain ways about the end of slavery and also about the development of uh, the development of a new set of civil rights after the war, that it made that development of rights not a question of perfect legislation, though obviously that matters, but a question of force. And that's,
2: so it's also a reversal of the, the idea of political liberty that traditionally you think of as political liberty as the freedom from government action. Mm-hmm. But for the freed people, political liberty meant the presence of government action, the more government action uh, against their former uh, oppressors, the freer they were likely to be.
3: That's exactly right. And you do see, I argue, that developing, that one of the things that the war does is it leads some northern anti-slavery people, and some northerners who hadn't been particularly anti-slavery before the war, to a much more grounded concrete understanding of the relationship between government and rights that is one says in the uh... In the period right after the war, there's an argument about whether there needs to be a, uh, right at the end of the battles. there's an argument about whether there needs to be a Freedmen's Bureau. And this anti-statist vision of liberty comes up that you refer to this very common American view that you don't need, that government only infringes upon liberty, and you don't need government to ensure liberty. You get a counter-argument that's been developing over the war in the Freedmen's Inquiry Commission that goes down to Mississippi, um, where there northerners who go to Mississippi say, Our premises about what freedom will mean have been shaped incorrectly by the sea islands. Because in the sea islands, the planters left. But in Mississippi, on the Mississippi River, they say we see the actual problem that the war will pose, which is... Not how can we remake a society once the planters are gone, but what do we do with a society when the planters folded and all of their social and much of their economic power remain and the planters and the slaves are facing each other. And in that context, they say, we're going to have to imagine a more direct set of interventions or else we'll have tyranny. So in the arguments over, surrounding the Freedmen's Bureau, you see northerners say, What we have forgotten, we're a victim of our success by the pacification of life relative uh, in New England and in the upper Midwest. We've forgotten what they said, that my liberty depends upon the fact that the sheriff carries a mace. And we've come to believe a fantasy that the law itself enforces itself. But what we've learned in the South is that this is not true. And that my liberty depends upon the force, the intervention of someone to defend it from being thwarted um, by someone stronger um, and more powerful than I am. In this sense, they argue that not only could slaves not be free with, ex slaves not be free without government, but that no one could be free without government. And this notion behind people like Stanton, people who had been. skeptics who are not active in anti-slavery before the war, but who become more and more interested in the question of, if we're going to free people, what does that involve? And an institutional vision of what an anti-slavery policy would be is a sort of forgotten legacy of the, of the Civil War, the way that it helps to develop a different, uh, not just expansion of government, but a positive declaration of the role of government in preserving liberty.
2: And uh, U.S. Grant is another one of those, along with Stanton, who who makes that transition. Uh, now, you mentioned, when we were talking about the role of the Army, uh, you talked about the, the geographic range. One way of measuring range is, is by mobility. Why not just station cavalry units all throughout the South? Um, you And you talk about the... Demobilization of the army and why that 's not possible i thought, I found that fascinating. Could you talk a bit about uh, the, the demobilization uh, at the end of the war
3: that 's a really at the a end of the fighting a really important question um, and I think that one of the things that I learned to do over the book and that I, I hope I articulated within the book was to let the air out of some of the what-ifs. One of the what-ifs in the literature had been what if there was an extensive occupation, and in some ways I try and ask an even bleaker question, which is what if there was an extensive occupation and it still wasn't enough? But one of the what-ifs in the literature on Reconstruction of things could have been different, I think may sit on that question of cavalry, um, that at the end of the fighting, Um, The enormous financial burdens that the uh, U.S. government was facing had really come to bear, not only because of their um, size, which was vast, but also because of a series of forgotten financial panics in the spring of 1865. That created a real worry in the government that was conveyed to the soldier, to the to the army leadership, um, that if they reached summertime and were still having to issue the kinds of debt that they were issuing, that they might not be able to find buyers, and that in that context you could really see um, at minimum massive inflation, but you could also see an inability to pay the army, um, and thus a potential inability to continue fighting at the level they were fighting. And so this causes the War Department um, to start planning on how to save money even before they've defeated the Confederacy. And so you have two engines going at the same time. You've got a piece of the War Department um, that is planning how to occupy the South, and another piece that's planning how to cut costs dramatically. And at first, they don't see these things as in as in, uh, in contradiction. Greg, I have to step
2: in here and take another short break, but we'll come back and talk about that contradiction uh, and some other questions in the fascinating role of the Army in the South, the, the U.S. Army in the South after the war. The book is After Appomattox, Military Occupation and the Ends of War. The author, Gregory P. Downs. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio.
0: Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market.
4: The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network.
1: That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm talking with
2: Greg Downs, author of After Appomattox, Military Occupation and the Ends of War. Uh really a fascinating and deep account of the Union Army in the South after the fighting ends in 1865, and the role that the Army plays, uh, I'll I'll quote one line, uh, the the Army's attempt to fundamentally disrupt social power relations in a rural hierarchical region. Uh, Slavery doesn't end by itself, Uh, resentment toward the North doesn't disappear by itself, Uh, If the army doesn't change these relations, uh, slavery uh, or neo-slavery continues. Let me ask a question uh, based on something you raised early in the book. Uh, As as listeners to the show know, uh, after Appomattox, uh, Sherman and Johnston meet at Bennett Place to arrange the next major surrender. And Sherman initially offers a plan that would not just uh, end the fighting between those two armies, but would end all the fighting. What if Sherman's plan had been accepted? What, would we have the same occupation?
3: Absolutely not. Um, because as you know, uh, what Sherman had offered in the aftermath of the assassination of Lincoln and his fears of, uh, of a slaughter um, in, the, uh, in the South, what he had offered was exactly what Grant had refused um, Robert E. Lee, which was peace. Lee had asked Grant to meet to discuss peace, and Grant had refused and only agreed to meet when they could discuss surrender. But Sherman went farther and said peace. And he, in that, he laid out what really is an alternative ending of the Civil War, which is he laid out that the civilian officers in control of the South would remain in control, that uh, Confederates would continue to vote. And he said nothing about slavery, though he operated under the assumption that, that slavery, the end of slavery, would be, you know, built into the end of the war. Um, and instead, um, what happened, even if it can seem to us limited or inadequate, shows what Sherman's the difference between Sherman's vision and the one that Grant and Andrew Johnson for that matter had held to. Because instead of governors still ruling, say North Carolina, Zebulon Vance, governor of North Carolina, is under put under arrest instead of sheriffs and judges order issuing writs for the arrest of US soldiers who are interfering with slavery, the soldiers are arresting or displacing the judges and sheriffs who are trying to uphold it. And so that potential of of what could have been, what an actual end of the war that would match our myth of Appomattox, sits in the the offer that Sherman made. Um, But very tellingly, as you know, the cabinet and uh, President Andrew Johnson not only rejected it, but rejected it vociferously. They understood that they could not let loose of the war powers as quickly as Sherman wished to.
2: Now, Andrew Johnson shows up in some polls as, of historians as the worst president ever. Uh, but your take on him in 1865, at the very beginning of Reconstruction, 65 and 66, uh, is a little different from the, the vision passed down uh, through, through textbooks today.
3: I think that, you know, let me put it this way. I didn't write this book to save Andrew Johnson's reputation. He's not, in many ways, he's not a particularly pleasant person. No. And in many ways, he's well-deserving of his uh, atrocious historical reputation. If he's not the worst president, he's in a small group of people uh, competing, competing for the title. Mm-hmm. But that said, what I didn't like as a historian was the way that Andrew Johnson's Became a sort of way of a block to analysis that people would attribute all kinds of things to Johnson as an explanation for why things didn't turn out the way we wish they had, when it wasn't at all clear that they knew what Johnson actually did. And in this way, that this sort of villainy of Johnson was impairing us from understanding what happened. And so once I tried to peel beyond that and to look at what, in what he, which, the ways that he actually acted. It seemed to me that in that period of 1865, it's a bit more of a mixed bag. He defends the extension of wartime. In fact, he defends the extension of the suspension of the writ of habeas corpus deep into 1866, even after his proclamations. Um, He is willing to hold on to some element of military control over the South. He's not only not the father of the black codes that the Southern state legislatures legislatures passed, but in many ways, he's disdainful of them, not morally, but strategically, um, and, is, uh, and is at a loss to understand this profound miscalculation he sees white Southern governments making in the fall of 1865, um, and that in other ways, where Johnson is understandably disappointing to us as contemporaries, I'm not sure that there's that much of a gap between what he did and what we can understand about what Abraham Lincoln would have done. And so in this sense, it seemed to me that that transition between Lincoln and Johnson was used to explain a lot of things that it actually doesn't explain. Um, And that Johnson, um, despite his severe limitations, in many ways held open the possibility of greater change in 1865 than our story, than our traditional story gives him credit for. And in some ways was at least more open toward, at least more central to the end of slavery than we generally have it. The beginning of civil rights—that's a different story for Johnson. And there, by 1866 to 67, he, he acts in the way that we know he acts, and deserves the blame that he gets.
2: Now, he keeps open uh, some of the war powers, the suspension of habeas corpus, and others. Uh, then the that shifts over to congressional reconstruction, and Congress keeps those war powers intact. Uh, how how does Congress how do you do that? Uh, how do you keep a war going after long after the shooting has stopped?
3: This is a good question, and I and I'm interested in the ways that that irony that, when, in many ways, with the exception of voting, when Congress acts in 1867 in the beginning of the, in the military Reconstruction Acts they're not uh, They're very clear that they're not inventing things uh, out of whole cloth. They're taking the power that Johnson had exercised until the fall of 1866 and claiming control over it, and then adding this crucial um, element of registering African Americans to vote through the army. They do it because they argue that only Congress can control when a war ends, that while the president sits atop the army, and can regulate the army within certain frameworks Congress provides, that the president doesn't actually declare the end of wartime. And in this sense, they're articulating a very powerful 19th century and especially powerful old Whig fusion um, of congressional supremacy in which the president executes laws. Um, but the Congress is really the central force um, in American political life, and especially their vision, that Congress had the final authority over wartime, that because of its power to declare war, it also had the power to declare an end to war, and that a president could not close that, could act through the military to use those powers, but could not close those powers um, by himself. To us, this seems crazy because we live in an era of extraordinary executive uh, presidential power over wartime, something in some ways inaugurated by Lincoln and in some ways exacerbated in the atomic era, but it reminds us that the you know as you well know the past was a different country and they did things differently then.
2: So if if Congress claims that they have the power to end uh, the Civil War. Uh, there's no document that, that we've, we're all familiar with, the Congressional Declaration of Peace or something <laughs> of that nature. Uh, how does it end? Uh, when does it end and how?
3: This is something that kind of can seem like an anticlimax, and, and we can understand why it is um, a hard story to put up against the Appomattox story because it doesn't have the kind of resonance. But that many. Um, congressional moderates, not just radicals, um, argue that the war continues in each state until that state is restored to Congress. And that therefore, the end of the war comes with the seating of the last representatives from the last Confederate state, which turns out in this case to be in the spring of 1871, and and, and it it comes from uh, Georgia. And this is a Very anticlimactic moment in our, uh, you know, looking backwards. Um, But at the moment when uh, the final representative is uh, is sworn in from Georgia, someone calls out, let us have peace, this echo of President Grant's election slogan. And it does illustrate um, this connection that had been made uh, very clearly when they're debating in the summer of 1870 what to do about Georgia. Um, Some of the most careful constitutionalists in Congress, especially Matt Carpenter, um, says we have to be careful about this because we have to recognize that once we bring back in Georgia and every Confederate state is represented, then the war is over. And then we're stuck with the normal powers that we've given ourselves, and we won't be able to fall back on these extraordinary powers.
2: And, of course, within a year, you have President Grant saying, you know, I actually need some of those (laughs) extraordinary powers. Uh, and he, he wants the, uh, the the Ku Klux Klan Act. He wants uh, force the ability to suspend habeas corpus. Uh, so so it is an anticlimax because it doesn't even end the story. It, it almost immediately you have the players saying, "Well, wait, we're not done yet." After all,
3: that's right. But it poses a series. One of the there are certain a bunch of fascinating um, ideas that circulate in regard to the Ku Klux Klan Act about what the government's powers are, Um, and one of the real fights is about the degree to which it's going to be regulated by peacetime. There are people who talk about it really as an extension of wartime, but in fact, as the Klan Act goes through Congress, it's modified in ways that are meant to make it reflect upon the old constitutional and statutory power of the president to respond to domestic insurrections, and so it's classed like those as being invoked by a proclamation and as having a, as being a temporary state, a state that's got to carry its own exit within it. Um, and it also doesn't permit, as some of the versions that were introduced would have, the use of military commissions. So it's a way of sending the Army in temporarily, not to exert control over an area, but to be a brief stabilizing force. Um, and that makes all the difference because they're forced then to turn over all of these arrested people to civil courts. And as you well know, that turns out to be an incredibly slow and laborious way um, to try people who are charged with uh, with being members of the Klan and violating civil and political rights.
2: So then they're, the they're, they're being tried in state courts. where That's you know, right. Where,
3: uh, um, the judges so not are by the military clan. commissions. But even that does remind us that the war had seemed to articulate a greater power of the military and civil life that might extend beyond peacetime. And it's that that I argue that sends a signal that that guides us to the central role for Democrats um, of dismantling that military state so that these crucial but somewhat understudied fights um, during Reconstruction in 1878 to 1879 to stop funding the army, to force reductions of the army, um, and eventually the habeas, and eventually the act that's restricting the intervention of the army into domestic affairs the posse comitatus act that these are actually really crucial moments in trying to shear away um, this expansive governmental ability to intervene in peacetime that the Klan act had had, uh, had seemed to suggest
2: so we have just a minute or so left it seems having read this book i, I think differently about reconstruction uh that instead of measuring it against the, the, what it could have been, uh, you're suggesting uh, it actually accomplished quite a lot, and it did it with, with the, the, the point of a bayonet.
3: That's right. The things that we we have a tendency to sort of bake in all the gains of Reconstruction and then explain why more didn't happen. And one of the things by moving by walking forward through it was to show how even things like the end of slavery, much less the development of basic rights, weren't guaranteed, and were enormous achievements on the ground of Reconstruction. But that also this deep um, problems that are caused by relying upon force because no other method was available. Um, To achieve gains, and what would happen once that force was was withdrawn was something, that's the thing I think that the Republicans never quite figure out, that coming from a relatively peaceful society, they weren't really prepared to understand how much force for how long it would take to actually remake the defeated Confederacy.
2: Well, it is a, a fascinating, uh, it, this is the kind of book that makes me uh, just decide, I guess I'm not going to write any more books, because well, I, I can't. Not true. It should make you want to <laughs> write you know, a
3: dozen <laughs> more books to, uh, you know, uh, no,
2: I mean, it. I mean, it, it's that good. It's, it's really uh, really a, a groundbreaking uh, piece of work, and one that uh, a lot of people read for a long time. Uh, so, listeners, you will want to get a copy of After Appomattox Military Occupation and the Ends of War uh, by Gregory P. Downs. You will rethink the post war era, uh, I guarantee you. And, Greg, thank you so much for being on the show tonight.
3: Thank you so much for having me. I very much appreciate it.
2: And, listeners, as always, thanks for listening to Civil War Talk Radio.